Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. I'm really happy that you're choosing to listen to my podcast, whatever time of the day it may be where you are. Um, Today, we have Dr. Murray Cook, who is a born and raised Scot, and he is a Scottish archaeologist. He works on both the commercial and the research side, and he runs a field school all of which are things we're going to talk about today. And uh, the beginning of my uh, saying hello to him and introducing people to the podcast got cut off um, because I didn't have the best reception. When it rains here, the reception in our house gets terrible. But I wanted to introduce the episode and say a big thank you to Dr. Cook for coming on the podcast. It means a lot when people, you know, especially international folks, devote their time to uh, having an interview with me. It means a lot. So I know you're really going to enjoy this episode. And um, I'd like to also say thank you to uh, a former guest of the podcast, Griffin Fox, who attended Dr. Cook's field school this summer for connecting the two of us. Yeah, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Well, thanks for that, Gabby. Uh, And please, just just Murray, no problem at all. All Looking forward to this. Awesome. Well, the first thing I have a question about is um, your history with getting your degree in anthropology, but also have you lived your whole life in Scotland? Yeah, I I mean, I've lived my whole life more or less within a kind of 30, 40 mile uh, area from where I was born. Um, So, uh, yeah, Scotland's a very small place. Um, whenever I have friends from America, Canada, Australia coming and they say, oh, can we go to Orkney? And it's about a three, four hour drive, absolute minimum. And that feels like a long way. Um, (laughs) There's always this contrast with anybody from a much bigger country. So, no, um, Scotland's a tiny place, but lots to do. And, yeah, no need to move anywhere really though you know I've had a few jobs but uh, no I've always lived in Scotland really 
undergraduate was was in archaeology, uh, not anthropology. We we a big big difference. Um, that was in Edinburgh. Um, then I worked for oh in the profession for kind of 10, 12 years, and um, decided to do a PhD. Um, and that was again at Edinburgh because I did it a particular route. I did research by public. Uh, research publication. So I did the work first, published it all, and then submitted a body of work to Edinburgh for consideration. Uh, and it, it's a kind of, um, I'd done the work, but I did it in a year. So I summarized it all. And I could do that <clears throat> at Edinburgh because I was an Edinburgh undergraduate. So it's, it's quite a good, um, a good system. Yeah. And I think the whole like publishing articles as a PhD dissertation is becoming more and more common even here in the States. And I really like it. I think it's a really great way to to get people started on their building their academic profile, like right right from the PhD. Did you feel that way? Well, it was it was a it was a question of um, I'd done the work um, because um, what was happening? I, I was I was a manager in a in a kind of uh, archaeological consultancy, so I was doing less and less fieldwork. And I thought, oh, I really would like to do some. So engineered the field schools, um, and I did two weeks a year on with an with an overarching research strategy, and then eventually that was of sufficient merit to to warrant the PhD. But mm-hmm. equally, PhD by publication is a fraction of the price. So mm-hmm. I paid one and a half thousand pounds for the PhD, which I think is about the cheapest one you can do. Yeah. The down. Yeah, no. <laughs> I can imagine. The downside is I have no teaching experience. Mm. So while I've got a PhD, I'm not getting any kind of um, access to departments because I think they're, they're looking for that teaching element, which, of course, you do if you do the kind of normal Mm-hmm. three four years and, and you're always you're always covering classes you're marking essays so there was a downside but yeah yeah I, I, it was really for me I, rather than um some kind of career hurdle if that makes sense yeah and I mean I feel like now with your field school that you mentioned you're running you're probably getting a lot of that teaching experience so hopefully that will kind of contribute well, I hope so. Um, the, the, the thing is, I, I think I have a good, a good work balance and I'm not certain what I would gain from being more formally in academia, which, I mean, on this side of the, the kind of Atlantic, lots of archaeology departments are closing mm-hmm. and it feels like a lot of hard work, whereas the field school element, basically almost like a straightforward contract arrangement, People come, they dig on a good site, that pays for all the, the costs associated with the publication, the post-excavation, and, I, and I'm basically doing the job without the form filling. <laughs> for, mm-hmm. uh, no, really, for and the grades, grading. You know. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I, I'm quite happy at the moment with, uh, with my wee patch and wee setup. Yeah. Um, what inspired you to start the field school and how long have you been running it for? Um. Well, the, the, the kind of original inspiration was to find a mechanism to fund research. Um, I'd done a, a very large series of excavations, which had a couple of monographs. And, you know, in a, in a typical development fashion, um, it was mainly it was they were primarily concerned with the development plot. 
So material outside the development plot, we couldn't dig. Fantastic sequence from the Mesolithic through to the medieval. And, but all the gaps in the sequence were round the wider landscape. So I started to kind of apply to dig the missing sites two weeks a year. And so there was the inspiration. And, you know, gradually um, it was easier to ask people to contribute to the, the project than it was to apply for the funds. Mm -hmm. And also I found that I enjoyed meeting new people, kind of passing on my enthusiasm for digging. And actually just, yeah. you, you meet different people every single year. So they kicked mm -hmm. off around 2005. Um, and I've run, I, I even ran them through COVID. Um, although lots of disinfectant and the odd mask. Um, but um, as I say, 10, 15 articles, the PhD, and at least one monograph. Two, in fact, two, two monographs have come out of all, all the work. So that's quite good fun. And by monograph, you mean a book, right? Mm. So I, I, would, I would describe a monograph as, as, a, as a book, but a technical, technical book. So it describes the results of the okay. excavation, whereas maybe okay. a book I might say was more synthetic. So summarizing other people, you know, a broader period. Um, I mean, both are, both are available free to download um and and maybe i'll i'll email you with the the links you can put them on the uh yeah i'll have them yeah, in the description are, yeah they're, they're um the publications of record um so rather than sit they, they do they do synthesize the period under concern in the site but it's lots of raw data so cool. yeah yeah, new term for me. I, I learned just as much <laughs> on the podcast as the listeners do, but I think that that's part of the fun. Um, yeah. So when you're, when you have students working on the field site, how is, what's their first day like? What are you introduce them to? Do you do a history of the area? Do they just start digging right away? Because I think like lots of people that are listening, we have a, an audience of a lot of undergrads. So I kind of want to prepare them for what, what, you know, what a first day or days on field school might look like. Well, uh, the, fir the first 20 minutes is, is always carrying this, the tools. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, yeah. carrying the tools to site. Um, no, really. Start with um, starts with the ba the histories of the site, the um, the basics of health and safety. You know, don't lift the spade above your head. Don't lift more than you can carry. And uh, the way the way the I try to figure out who knows what, because there'd be some people who know absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Some people have dug for years. Some people want to brush up the skills. So we try and kind of filter out who knows what, what experience people have had, and thus kind of come up with a specific program for each individual. But inevitably, the dig moves from deturfing to troweling to recording to backfilling. And, and what happens is that some people will say, can I have, can I do some photography? I just want to sieve. I just want to dig. And, you know, that, that range of experiences, range of choice that an individual makes. So people, if people want to, to do um, one particular aspect, that's what they focus on. And then um, 
within lots of the field school, I, I kind of every now and again, well, it's actually not every now and again, I have between uh, one and five people on longer term placements with me. And um, what they do is, is they come to more than one dig. Um, and we and I and I talk them through more of the process, so that that is before and after. So we get involved in the design of the project and the writing up the project, and sometimes it forms a thesis topic. Mm-hmm. So you know, a few students um, have done short-term, long-term placements with me, and and I, I should say when I'm not doing the field school, I do um, I work for a local authority in Scotland commenting on planning applications for development so we get I get people to help with that as well so we get a kind of a broad range of both the research and the commercial sides uh, in in Scotland Um, and I was just thinking someone someone has been working with me for for uh, two years through their undergraduate I had someone else who graduated last year who did four years worth and Mm -hmm. she would just come to every dig um our thesis topic was one of the sites we dug together her name will be a co-author on the publication mm-hmm. you know it, it just it, it's a good way to learn because you you go back and you repeat and you repeat and you repeat you know and and it's great to learn and, and but there's so much going on there's new names there's a new place there's new techniques that you always forget something so you have to go back over things, you know, draw the section again, talk about context recording, talk about stratigraphy, you know, how to clean, you yeah. know, how to clean up soil, why you shouldn't use a brush. And, and, you know, that steady repetition of things, I think, is is what you need to kind of hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a job in it, um, if you're looking to be a researcher, well, then, uh, or in academia, you need the publications. So, again there's an element if you can get um start writing um which which we've done which i do all the time so um and that that um commercial side is kind of like for anyone that's listening it's kind of like what i imagine crm is like here in the states in that it's consulting every time something new is being built there's survey and sometimes excavations that go yeah. on before a building or a parking lot can be put down. Exactly, exactly the same thing. So my role is to uh, develop a spec um, if, uh, if there's something of interest and then that's tendered out to commercial contractors and they do it. So it, yeah, CRM, uh, CRM over the other side of the Atlantic and, and, we just call it uh, contracting and, and um, consulting. So, you know, exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Um, so currently, what sites are you working at or what projects are you working on that we can talk about? Oh, well, loads. Um, I've just uh, been digging uh, an early medieval church boundary. Um, so this is Pictish. Um dating to around 700 AD. Um, it's called Logie Old Kirk. Um, and the, 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 the name there, we think, is, is a corruption of locus from the Latin. Hmm. So the place, probably meaning the holy place. 
And um, when churches are so rare, they don't necessarily have names, just the Latin phrases. And um, this, we think, is, is, is founded circa AD 700 as the, the kind of Pictish, Pictish ruling classes uh, defeat the kingdom of Northumbria, push their boundaries south, and as well as a political reorganization, they bring uh, a religious reorganization. And they found a number of, uh, they found churches, they have a royal cult, um, and all this happens. And then uh, this church become, stops being important three, four hundred years later, but we, we have, uh, now we call them Viking hogbacks. They're not really Viking burials, but they're kind of stone burial monuments in a Viking tradition or a Viking um, inspiration. So there are about four, up to four of these at Logie. So we think it's important between AD 700 and AD 1000, 1100, and then drops, its political significance drops. And it's just another bog standard mm -hmm. church. So um, this one, we've been digging the northern boundary, and I'm doing this with some of my, some, I run a, a college night class as well, and be digging that with, um, uh, with the students from there to try and see if we can spot an earlier boundary. We've got 500-year-old um, pottery. We think we've got the 500, 600-year-old boundary outside the, the 19th century boundary. And then beyond that, there's something else. But we keep running out of time, small seasons. So that's quite good. Um, I, think, I think I've been working on for three years, which is very exciting, um, is a very, very extensive piece of rock art a multi or rock carving multi-period rock carving and at one end there are quern rough outs so you know a, a rotary quern for grinding corn oh um, yeah yeah and uh so we think that those are iron age to medieval it's also got cup mark stones so the kind of um Broad, broad, uh, late Neolithic, early Bronze Age art, but then very, very significantly, it's got um, a very large, a large extent of um, polissoirs, and polissoirs are um, Neolithic polished stone axe grinding grooves, right? Mm. <laughs> Which is quite a mouthful. So the polished stone axes are. The thing that uh, you know, six, six to seven thousand years ago, where the trees are chopped down, but they're also um, they're not just utilitarian. They're also we think they have a diplomatic or a religious function. The more kind of ornate of them, and we have this very, very large set of grooves, and there is a, a str struggling to confirm how unique it is. It's there are two or three in Scotland. This is the biggest by a significant factor. It's probably one of the biggest in Britain. And one of the, Irene, uh, that we were, I was meeting with this morning to talk over it. We're trying to work out if there's one, of, you know, how common should these be? How far do you travel to grind a Neolithic polished stone axe? Do you travel for a day, a week? Given that there's only two in two or three in Scotland, mm -hmm. is this 
the main Scottish one? It, or yeah. is it that we're not finding them? Mm-hmm. Um, and how? And so we have this center of pilgrimage, I think. So it's both utilitarian and a pilgrimage point where you're actively making a decision to come to grind these axes. And are you doing it at midnight? Are you doing it at the summer solstice? And it's in this incredible uh, bowl-like location between uh, two major rivers with hills on um, a, a kind of a 360 hills and mountains. And you have this, this dome in the middle of a bigger basin. Um, and clearly the hills, the mountain ridges have some kind of significance. Are they are they gods, you know? And and you can imagine. And and what we're the big debate we're having is how many axes are there in you know a kind of ten mile area, a twenty mile area? Are any of the axes that are grown there in the wider environs? And we don't think they are. We think people are walking for mile after mile after mile to come to this location, which is. And, and, you know, the thing is unique in Scotland, maybe unique in Britain. How far does that go in terms of its significance? So that, that's very exciting. But that's yeah, just, that's volunteers. So we, we do, I've been doing a day a month, a day a week, that kind of thing, as the weather permits for the last three years. <laughs> we begin Great. backfilling tomorrow. Um, but that's very good that's very good so yeah there's um but other things uh digging a pictish hill fort um uh, digging a medieval castle um i dig isn't that what uh, griffin helped with the castle no griffin was digging on a roman iron age elite settlement so like a fort Um, i knew i remembered it was some sort of bigger structure yeah, so, so this is a kind of a, an elite family, but like a, a single house for, for the kind of elite family members. And um, that is contemporary with the Roman Empire. So the individuals are trading with Rome. It's one of those odd things. Um, when, when during the Roman, the Roman occupation in Scotland, um, if someone builds a defensive or someone uses defensive architecture, it's not really defensive, if that makes sense. It's because um, the Romans could just knock it out and the Romans wouldn't let someone have defensive architecture. So what you're really looking at is some kind of, um, it, it's, it's, it, it's like driving a Humvee. You know, that, that's a military vehicle, but this isn't an individual. If, you, if you've got one for your personal use, you're yeah. not in the military. You're not using it yeah. for its intended purpose, but you are somehow kind of um, More drawing. More like a stylistic choice. Yeah, but equally, um, uh, we think with we think with these hill forts that they're trying to create the impression of a of a warrior aristocracy. Mm. So it it's not as crude, but you can imagine. We all know individuals who, some, you, we might know veterans, but we certainly know people who claim to be veterans and they're drawing upon the authority of something that they don't have a legitimate claim to use. So mm-hmm. architecture has, our architecture has a language that, um, that communicates a message to people. 
um, and we 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 are struggling to understand that after two thousand years. But if you looked at um, Mock Baronial is a, a style in architecture here, or Scots Baronial, where it's drawing upon medieval architectural trends for churches or castles, but it really isn't a church or a castle. It's just mm -hmm. trying to communicate power, authenticity, heritage, mm -hmm. without really having anything to back that up. <laughs> Got it. You know. Got it, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what I do, um, I mean, the way the, um, the way that what explicitly, I do the field schools over the summer, and, I, and the money, I spread the money across the rest of the year doing other things. So, yeah, Griffin was at the Kings Park Field School, the excavation there. But, you know, equally, I've just done, um, we did the ca castle. And this is a, a medieval castle that's turned into an 18th century garden. It's very odd. So the house, they move house. They have a castle. And they get money, they probably get money from empire. So um, they kind of um, probably from India, the, the, the kind of empire possessions in India. And they knock the castle down and build a bigger house. But they keep the castle as an element of their garden, like a folly. So you could walk around the garden and go, that's where we used to live. And, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's what you do if you're, you're seriously rich. Um, yeah. So the, <laughs> Yeah. Have, do they know, have mini golf in castle. Scotland? Sorry, say that again. Do they have mini golf in Scotland? Yeah, 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 yeah. It yeah. reminds me of yeah. that. How it's yeah. just like there'd be like a little fake kind of castle thing. In origins, thirteenth, fourteenth century, and then completely destroyed by seventeen eighty, eighteen hundred. But we found the doorway. We found the yard, and I'm digging that with local volunteers in the local school um so you know what else what else um sterling where i am is mm -hmm. actually the kind of um the birthplace so you 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 know what plate is i mean you're a campbell so do you take do you take uh, your tartan seriously no i actually don't know anything about my my scottish heritage other than that i have it right well so every um so you, so the your name campbell right has uh, a tartan a family tartan which you, you might call a plaid, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it's a specific pattern. Now, a lot of that is kind of, it's not made up, but it's exaggerated, right? Um, and it's exaggerated to encourage people to um, buy tartan, right? So the people that come up, but, and, and actually I should say, I, I, not, not to mock it, so tartan is is a is a tra the traditional cloth of Highland Scotland, Highland Gaelic Scotland. Um, it is specific tartans are connected to specific families. It gets associated with um, the Jacobites. So if you've seen Outlander, you know that the the Jacobites are basically a rival royal family who keep trying to get the Scottish and English throne back. So the Jacobites launch a series of rebellions from the late 17th century all the way to 1746. And Tartan becomes associated with Jacobites, right? Mm -hmm. And the British state are so scared 
of the Jacobites that they banned the wearing of tartan. It's actually a criminal act to wear tartan. And, um, you know, people are arrested, people are shot. Um, it, it's actually, it becomes a symbol of rebellion. Now, it also, once the Jacobites are dead and buried, it becomes incredibly fashionable, right? Because, you know, the way rebellion can become safe. It's like punks now. Punks are safe. Um, yeah. And although, uh, so anyway, so tartan becomes a symbol of rebellion. Then it becomes safe. And because it becomes safe, it becomes fashionable. And the person... And, and the kind of modern tartan industry where you might, uh, you know, you might say you need the Campbell tartan and yeah. then the Campbell tartan, you might have three variants of the Campbell tartan. You might have a hunting tartan, a dining tartan, a military tartan. And that then means that you need to buy three kilts. And the person that comes up with all of that is based in Stirling. Ah. And over the summer, I was digging their, uh, their weaving mill. So the origins of tartan. So just to kind of um, find out where that is, what survives in the ground. So, yeah. I mean, you can see that across the course of that, I've been digging from Neolithic material all the way through to 18th century industrial stuff. So I just dig whatever I feel I'm interested in, whatever there is a, a particular aspect. My long-term research consistently that I do is um, is kind of a thousand BC to a thousand AD with a real focus on kind of 200 BC 200 AD so before the Romans mm -hmm. <laughs> the Romans and then the impact that the Romans have on Scottish society and how that changes um, the introduction of Christianity the introduction of literacy and then all of that creates the kind of uh, the political maps of Scotland, so the border between England, England and Scotland. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's so interesting about the tartan because I actually now I'm like thinking, and I remember we had um, some sort of emblem on it, and then the tartan yeah. like in our house, like the Campbell tartan. And yeah. I wonder if my dad still has that because it's on his side. It's my dad's dad who's yeah. had the Scottish heritage. Um, but also when you're excavating like the, the, the weaving mill like that, it's so funny because your evidence and we were actually, I'm, so I'm in a sacrifice and violence class, um, with Dr. Hagen Klaus. I don't know if you're familiar with the name. He's a bioarchaeologist, so you probably not, but anyway, we were talking about, you know, what preserves in the archeological record and how we were talking about Vikings and, you know, a lot of things were wood and that doesn't really preserve. So yeah. it's funny how, you know, you're looking at a weaving mill, but there's so much context that's missing from the actual like textiles that they were producing. And I love archeology, span but I also sometimes am blown away by what we are missing in the record. And I guess that's where like ethno histories, like you were talking about come in. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the, 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 the kind of the, 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 the thing I take is that Basically, history history allows lies to be told, you know, because whoever writes a history is, um, you know, you're, you're writing a version of events probably to justify a current political situation. So, um, you know, it's this kind of, right, so, you know, in kind of preppy schools in America, um, so if you think about Clueless, right? Yeah. Um, 
those uh, plaid skirts are worn by the kind of uh, the young women, right? Yeah. The, the reason that happens is that in 19th century America, kilts were worn by young men. Mm-hmm. And there's a transition from the kilts being worn by elite young men to becoming um, elite young women. Mm-hmm. And that's undocumented. And how, and, and now, <laughs> you know, so that whole, and, and basically, how do you go from something that you would be shot in, in 1748 in Scotland, you'd be shot for wearing a kilt. And yeah. how, does that, how does that same material, that same costume, end mm-hmm. up being appropriated by young women in kind of elite, elite educational institutions? So all of that's missing, let alone the last 200 years worth of kilts, mm-hmm. um, because it's all disposable, it's all rotted, it all vanishes. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think, um, but then the facts that you do get from archaeology are incontrovertible. But, of course, that's where our interpretation comes in. Um, mm-hmm. A big, um, uh, do you know what vitrified forts are? Have you heard of those before? I have not. These are really cool, right? Um, the, the Scotland has the highest density of vitrified forts. So these are. So a fort, a fort is obviously a defensive enclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes if you have a fort with a timber-laced rampart, so a timber, inf- a timber infrastructure in a, in a wooden wall, in a stone wall, mm-hmm. and the timber infrastructure allows the wall to go two, three metres high. So it becomes much, much higher. If you set fire to one of those and maintain the fire for you know, two, three days, maybe a week, the temperature um, within the core of the rampart can reach such extremes that the stones melt, the, the stone begins to melt and fuses with the other stones. Oh so my a process goodness. called, yeah, yeah, called vitrification. Now, the question is, who's doing that? That's, in, that's so incredibly violent. And We've got um, early medieval records of people firing hill forts and where people have dug those hill forts, they've found vitrified material. So what you're really looking at is, is in effect, this kind of the equivalent of a war crime. You've captured the fort, you've set fire to it, you've maintained the fire for days. So you can imagine smoke during the day, visible for miles. The bonfire, if you can imagine a bonfire maybe 20, 30, 40 metres across, the whole of a hilltop on fire for days. You can see how intense that is. Now, of course, enemy action, right? That that, that makes sense where we have a historical context, but we also get it in in the kind of prehistoric period. And in the prehistoric period, we have no written records to explain what's happening. Mm-hmm. So is it enemy action or are they doing it themselves? Is it ritual destruction mm-hmm. of a fort? So is it ritual construction and then ritual destruction? Um, and all of this is particularly fascinating because how, how on earth do we know? And all we have yeah. is the fact that it was set fire to, but the, mm-hmm. the, the, the firing was so violent. I mean, it's, it's basically the best evidence for violence in, in the Scottish uh, prehistoric record. 
because it's a, it is fiery yeah. destruction. So yes, yeah. absolutely. Personally, do you think that if you were to hypothesize, which do you think it is, enemies or ritual? Well, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I have published on this and I hedge my bets. I think that in, in small-scale forts, um, in an AD context, it's enemy action. Mm -hmm. But there are one or two forts that date to kind of 500, 200 BC. They're absolutely enormous. They're on incredibly high hills. The ramparts are six meters wide, two to three meters high. They don't have entrances. They, they're not associated with internal settlement. And the entire, and they, they're stretching for hundreds of meters. So, you, you know, they're actually, it's the rampart that set fire to rather than the hilltop. And it's clear that the prevailing winds would require you to do this over several attempts. Mm -hmm. So I think you're looking at ritual construction. Um, have you heard of um, the European term Verikshanza? So it's a kind of a ritual enclosure like a nematin. Um, so there's a, a, a kind of an area of thought that people are building heavily built ritual enclosures. So you can't see what's going in. They're not defensive. They're just designed to be screened. So people can't see what's going on. And maybe the construction is ritual, like a massive amount of volume of um, uh, labor, construction materials, timber, and then you know, in, in the same way, like a, a pyramid, pyramid being built, absolutely enormous volume of material consumed, but then set fire to it. And if you thought, thought about, say, Tutankhamun's tomb, all that wealth, it's not destroyed, mm -hmm. but it's sealed. So yeah. maybe the, the destruction of this fort that you build up as a, as a gift to the gods. But yeah, no, I, that, that's, uh, that's, that really... Um, excites yeah. me the the vitrified forts has there been any evidence in any of them of like burned human remains like as if people were in there because i feel like for me that would be strong evidence that it was like enemies because then people would die yeah. inside um no we, we've got a handful of um odd deposits so there's um there was a human skull in a well in one of them so <laughs> just the skull yeah. Um, but yeah. no, no kind of um, trapped individuals. But the difficulty is, I don't think we've dug enough of them. Mm. Um, and uh, there, there was there, there is a there is a fort in the north of England where there's a series of bodies from um, within collapsed ramparts, and we we've definitely got evidence for people defending hill forts, but not setting fire. Not mm -hmm. the vitrified ones. The, the two sets of evidence are separate. Got it. So unfortunately, yeah, because that's I'm I'm a bones person, so oh I good, yeah, about, yeah. I always think about the skeletal remains. Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, the 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 trouble is a lot of the soils in Scotland are quite acidic, so you mm, need very specific yeah. conditions for the for the bones to survive. Unfortunately, yes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then is the other thing you mentioned this earlier when you're excavating, because uh, it's quite wet there, is weather kind of a prohibiting factor for certain digs? Um, yeah, I mean, it, um, it does rain. Uh, it, it does rain in Scotland. We, we don't get we don't get long, stable seasons. 
mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So our summer mm-hmm. can be warm, but it can be cold and it can be windy and it can mm-hmm. be wet and it might change from day to day. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the solution for that is either good waterproofs or a series of gazebos. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, Griffin, yeah. Griffin will tell you, I basically have a series of gazebos just so... Um, if it rains for an hour, it rains for an afternoon, we just carry on digging underneath them. But um, the biggest problem is really if you get your, your boots muddy and you begin to slip and slide. Um, mm. But the gazebos, I got, I've, got oh, ma- uh, I've got massive amounts of gazebos now. I can cover the whole of the site. <laughs> good. And, um, yeah, well, it was the only way. we. I, I um, Back in... 2019 I think 2019 um we had we had some freakish weather where it rained almost every second day and it was really heavy and we just we couldn't do anything you know we would do an hour or two then it would rain so I I just had to buy the gazebos and that way you know we uh we can carry on working so that that was fine but you need to be I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff I'm doing at the moment with volunteers, um, uh, we cancel a lot of days because mm-hmm. if it's if it's not fun, it's not worth doing, you know. So, um, and you know, there's a there's a probably a tenth of the days get cancelled mm-hmm. over the course of the year because uh, the weather, the weather. There's no point in climbing onto a climb a half hour walk onto a moor. Yeah. <laughs> where it's going to rain yeah. all the way there rain on you while you're there and then rain on you on the way back so yeah that that's yeah. no fun yeah that's no fun at all yeah we have a bit of rain here today and my roommate's cat is sitting in the window right next to me she's just watching the <laughs> rain you have to let her in huh oh she's in she's just she's sitting oh, on the she's, out, right, she's sitting right, on the yeah. inside of the window staring at the okay. outside rain yeah. all right no, they're we, all um, uh, I have, we have two cats and um, so I, I always get up early I always get up early I'm up about half five every morning and I do a couple of hours of work so the cats get out so my routine is get up coffee on computer on cats out that's every morning and then they go out for a couple of hours then they come back in for the breakfast <laughs> and then they, they sleep the rest of the day um, and if they're, they're, they're asleep They'll be awake later on this evening running around, but they like going out for a, a smell and a, a kind of a prowl about. So, yeah. Do they bring you back gifts? They used to. We used to let them out all the time. And yeah, they would bring back things, everything. Um, half-eaten mice, half-eaten birds. Yeah. And it just, it, it's, it's, it's not so much, I don't object to a, to a wild animal bringing in something is doing its nature that's fine i just they don't need to kill anything because we feed them so i object yeah. to the loss of um, yeah. the loss of the birds <laughs> yeah no we have so you mentioned a lot about the volunteers i know yeah um, partly because i read about it on your profile but also griffin mentioned that community engagement is really important to you yeah. and uh working with working with local groups and volunteers what have you, what do you think the benefits are for that, especially in a smaller place like Scotland where everything, for example, I feel like here 
you can have some community engagement, but it's not so widespread because we have such a big community. In a place where you have a smaller community, do you feel like it has real impacts in in the tangible impacts that you can see in your community? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I mean there's, there's lots of there's there's lots of thinking about this, but you know this concept of placemaking, you know, where people begin to value where they live and how do you get them to value where they live. And for me, that, that begins with understanding the past of where you live, to recognize it's not simply a place to kind of sleep and, um, and kind of go to work, but the, the, the place has roots. So you have that where, where you take, I mean, and, and again, you know, th- this works in Scotland where basically every, every square inch has history going back 10,000 BC. Except, yeah. you know, except if it's been built on. So you can go out, put a spade in the ground. So if you if you encourage a community to research its past and find out something about the thing or in the, on their back door, then they're more interested in their location. But equally, it has the benefit of, as long as you do it properly, so improve the management, improve the understanding, maybe improve the interpretation then mm-hmm. it becomes a place that people want to come to yeah. because there's something there. Then you have the kind of um, the whole just meeting new people, getting those people outside. There's this whole thing. Uh, in Scotland, we, um, we don't have a trespass law in Scotland. I mean, go anywhere, yeah. right? Except people's gardens, <laughs> you know, and, and you, know, you don't want to walk through someone's uh, crop in a field. But basically, treat the treat the country with respect. We can go anywhere, we can walk mm-hmm. anywhere, we can do anything. But people are always a bit nervous about exercising those rights. But there's something really nice about having formal permissions to be somewhere, to be digging on someone's ground, to be researching something, and that sense of almost kind of being special because you've got the permission to be there. That's that's quite good. Yeah. It's quite good meeting people, and then that whole business of confidence building, you know, that you're actually teaching people new skills. They're confident because now they, they're kind of, oh, I'm doing archaeology. That feels really yeah. exciting. It's really special. So I, I think there's a whole range of benefits um, to doing it. And of course, if, if I'm kind of speaking with um, my very um, limited budget researcher hat on, this is this is a way to get research done very cheaply we all we all have fun together Mm -hmm. i mean the hours are more limited i tend to do 10 to 3 so 10 in the morning 3 in the afternoon with volunteers Mm -hmm. and it makes it easier for everybody to do if you've got to get kids off to school yeah you can you you can do that if you've got if you're going to work part-time do some emails in the morning you can do that and also it's clearly not a job of work so no Mm -hmm. one's exhausted at the end of it so yeah. the whole thing is more relaxed. It's fun. And um, I mean, I, I think we could um, eulogize archaeology and, and talk about how important it is. And I think it is important, but it's not brain surgery. It's not social services. Mm-hmm. It's not nursing. It's something I think a civilized society should do. Yeah. But of course, if, if we expect a civilized society to pay for it, what does that, what do taxpayers get? So. Yeah. Here, here is a thing for taxpayers to get a little bit back for what they um, what they uh, they pay for. Um, yeah. 
and you know so I, I think I think there's just benefits all round it, it's interesting um, I mean the hard commercial benefits of the field school there's Griffin coming from the states we Australians Canadians Europeans all coming to Sterling all bringing kind of uh, you know in, in effect that's um, exports that's that's foreign currency coming into Sterling doing something they wouldn't have come to Sterling otherwise yeah um, so I, I think I think the benefits are are, are obvious and very tangible uh, mm -hmm. but you know the proof is in the pudding really do, do, do what what does wider society think about it and but yeah. then again that's our job to convince them that yeah. it is worth doing and, yeah. and I don't think we can ever be complacent um, that you are that what we do is worthwhile and mm -hmm. We, we've always got to be alert to uh, to proselytize for it. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's really fascinating, and I think it's a really cool thing that I hope more more people do. I think the community engagement is is yeah. really important. Um, I think kind of one of my final questions is: What are some of your favorite things about Scotland or Sterling in specific? Um, your favorite things that you would tell people about that have never been there that might convince them to go visit? Well, um, I think Scotland is just an incredible place. We're very friendly. We have um, kind of the, the large, the world's largest cultural festival, the Edinburgh Festival. We have incredible hills and mountains. Um, the, this whole right to roam thing, which is, you know, the no trespass law. You can go anywhere. You can go swimming in our rivers, in our seas. No one's going to shout at you. Um, very friendly, I think, in terms of kind of uh, Stirling. Stirling's this uh, astonishing medieval kind of um, uh, defended city. Um, it's, it's on a former frontier. Um, the border keeps changing in Scotland as as we're kind of fighting each other, fighting the English, and Stirling sits on the frontier. So you want to understand Scottish politics, Scottish military history. There's no better place to do it at um, at Stirling. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so cool. much for sharing that. I think no problem um, at all. Scotland's definitely been on my bucket list. I'm just waiting to like not be a broke student to be able to travel. <laughs> there are so many places that I would love, love, love to go. Um, Scotland. You, nice. need to, you need to come home. Yes, I know. It's funny. <laughs> I actually, until you mentioned that, I was like, oh yeah, I am Scottish. I kind of forgot that. <laughs> That's okay. Just, don't worry. Yeah, just, just to show how little we appreciate our heritage. Yeah, no, don't worry. Don't worry. It's, uh, you're always welcome here. Thank you. Does your family have a tartan? Yeah, um, I, uh, strictly speaking, I'm a McDonald. Cook is my step-grandfather's name. So uh, that's just kind of one of those things in the couple of generations ago. But no, I'm, I'm really a, a McDonald. So cool. there you go. I'll have to look it up. I'll post it. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that that's all, all I had to ask. I really that's appreciate okay. you taking the time. No problem at all. It was a pleasure, Gabby. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.